Hi everyone, welcome to a very special anniversary episode of Your Double Podcast. We have released over 50 episodes so far through the last year, and this is a very special episode. We have a group of people who have been fighting the abduction and alienation issue in Japan. This is going to be an in-depth discussion between them on topics such as the experience a left-behind parent goes through, how people can help, how politicians and global agencies can help, and so much more. I know what you're thinking. So who are the guests? But before we get to that, this is going to be a two-part episode. Some guests will appear in part one, and some others in part two, as it's hard to get six high-profile individuals who are busy in their own life in a single call. The good news is that they all have been guests in our podcast before this. Now, who are the guests? We have the co-founders of FMP, Enrique and Daniel, with us. We also have Vincent Fichot, James Cook, Thomas Saviskas, and Rachel Endo. All of them are left behind parents, and luckily for Rachel Endo, she has been reunited with her kids. You can listen to our previous episodes with them to know more about their stories. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone. First of all, thank you for choosing to be here on a Saturday evening. I really appreciate it. People who listen to this podcast have listened to your abduction or alienation stories, and they know what happened with you and your spouse or your ex-spouse. In this anniversary episode, I would like to have a discussion about things we did not get to talk about in your individual episodes. Now, with that said, all of you here are also allowed to ask each other questions if you guys have any. Let me kick the discussion off with the very first question. What is something about abduction or alienation that most common people, people who have never gone through it, have no clue about? The answer can be something that they never realize, never understand, or, or will never experience. And in your situation, if you did experience it, how did you overcome it? How did you manage it when it comes to your situation? Okay, one of the th- things that you find in this situation. I guess is who your real friends are, and who the real support system is, and who are just kind of there in the background. Um, some of that's heartbreaking, um, and some of it you experience is a deep sense of betrayal. Um, and there are uh, you just the real people in your life that care about you show up and stay there. The pretenders, the fakers, are the ones that don't want to mess with it. They fall away, and. Um, in my case, or my own experience, that was a lot of people that I thought were friends that bailed uh, and faded in the background, and they all have their reasons. This is not the most comfortable topic, particularly if you're a parent. And most people, for you know, contemplate the circumstances that we are in, and for a moment they feel sick and they want to throw up. And to help them get beyond that, they come up with things to tell themselves to get rid of that bile and that sickness in their stomach. Things like, oh, they'll come back. Oh, it'll work out. Blah blah blah. Whatever they need to do, they tell themselves so they can stop freaking out. Um, they try that on you, and as we all know, those are empty words. Those are not very helpful, and so that it it's quite isolating. And 
many people say, you know, particularly in groups like this, one of the things we want, we do these things is because we want to have group. We want to not feel alone, but in this, you feel very alone. Um, and the next bit of it is one, you know, when you're separated from your children, um, no one can put in words what that does to you emotionally uh, and mentally. And then others hearing that, um, that you just can't put in words. It's, it, it's no fault of anything other than this is something that's so visceral, something we feel so deep in our core that there are no words to do service to it, but we all understand that feeling when I talk about it. The, um, and so, you know, people leave for that, but we've got the hardest thing is this alienation. I have one, one of my oldest sons, I have two sets of twins. My oldest boys now are both going to college in Boston, one at Boston college, the other one at Northeastern university, the one at Northeastern university, not long after they were taken, sent me an email and I sent me an email, sent me a letter, almost um, like index written on index cards. Like it was almost a ransom note, you know, of an abducted kidnapped person that looked like that and says, dad, I miss you. I love you. You know, love and love Evan. That's his name. Um, it was within two years that through discovery, legal discovery, I saw a letter he wrote to the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo um, begging them to beg me to stop trying to return them. And he said I was not his father and he wished I was dead. So that level of alienation is it, one is it's meant. First of all, we all know it's abuse. It's child abuse, just flat out. No equivocation, no, no dis. There's no way you can dismiss it. It is flat out child abuse to do that to a young, impressionable child. In his case, he was 12, 12 and a half when that happened. Well, in this case, for 13, actually, at that point. But he left when, they were, when he was 11 and a half. So that's just flat out mental abuse. I can't get either one of him or his older brother or his twin brother to talk to me at all, um, even though I help them with getting inf my information so they can get into the university in the United States. They cut off all they. Only one of them would talk to me and then afterwards said, thank you, but I have no interest in talking to you ever again. So that that's heartbreaking. Um, but how do I get through it? I have immersed myself in learning. I've immersed myself in improving myself and making myself more mentally strong. I, uh, I, stay I try to stay as active, physically active as possible. I love cycling, riding my bicycle, bicycles actually depending which, which kind of route I want. Um, and I just try to stay active and I have turned my life into one of being of service to others um, in terms of, I am not literally a teacher, but I try to be a, a teacher, a mentor, a share of information, trying to help other people be as successful in their lives as possible, just like I was to my children. As, an, as, as a way of contrast, um, my wife being Japanese, um, and this, I'm going to say this objectively, not Japan bashing, but we all understand how they go about goading, cajoling, browbeating, shaming children into studying. Um, I was the opposite of that to my children. I never, ever, they never had my love or my approval was conditional on anything they did other than being the best person they were. And I'm consistent with that, with other people that I lead in my business in work and all of that. So that's what I do. And that keeps me going. Yeah, I think what, what James did pretty much sums it up pretty good. Um, in terms of you find out who your friends are and family is. And yeah, I mean, after telling them two or three times, they get annoyed of you. They're like, okay, have we heard enough? But So 
you have to find an outlet. So I'm glad you did cycling. I used to cycle and my outlet was um, house remodeling. And then COVID-19 happened. And then I didn't have anywhere to go get things. And then I was like, okay, let's turn to tech. I won't. How can my daughter find me? So this is how I started find my parents. So find my parent is my outlet. Um, and that's been my outlet for the last year and a half. And um, along the journey, I've met some wonderful people. And I'm really thankful that I've met some great people. Um, and like I said earlier, I wish I didn't meet these people under these circumstances, but I'm also glad I did meet them. But uh, yeah, I found this really dark side of not just Japan, but it's a global issue of parental abduction. Um, several countries have them, uh, have this issue, and it's just saddening that we, even though we're at year 2021, you know, and after the birth of Christ, and we're still having some of these basic issues that I would say that are in some countries, not all countries, in some countries, are these, these basic issues where, you know, you would think of like the Stone Age time. But uh, sure, maybe in the Stone Ages, they didn't, they didn't even have this issue, right? Maybe they had ways to solve this. Um, but it's quite upsetting yeah, how children have no voice or no rights in some countries. And uh, yeah, and here we are, governments fighting for other things and instead of addressing the very basics. Yeah. I mean, obviously, first of all, there's the financial costs, which are much larger than I think people would expect. It goes beyond just legal fees, um, but it can be traveling to and from different countries. At the last minute, you might you know, be told you have a, a court hearing or a lead in a certain country and you need to travel to that country. Um, this really means that a lot of parents end up going bankrupt. They have major financial problems. Um, and sadly, doesn't always mean that they actually get their children back. So that's from a financial perspective. From an emotional or psychological or psychological perspective, it's also quite high, um, but quite hidden. So we do know and we've read and heard about a number of uh, parents who have children who've been abducted, who have unfortunately taken their own lives because they cannot, they cannot handle the emotional toll it has on them. Uh, we've also heard about children who have taken their own lives um, because obviously children are highly vulnerable. They are not fully developed. So the emotional toll is even heavier on them. They often don't have people to talk to about, about the issue that they're facing. So, and, and I think finally, for a lot of left behind parents I speak to, what they tell me is that they almost feel kind of like they're grieving, they're dead inside. They, they have this child or children somewhere in the world. They often don't even know where they are, even, even if they're domestic within Japan, like a Japanese mother will have no idea where her children are with the Japanese father. Zero idea, they could be anywhere. She has no idea whether they are well, they're sick, they're alive even. 
There's a lot of fear of how they're being treated by a potential stepmother, stepfather, stepbrothers and sisters. There's a, there's a high um, rate of child abuse in Japan and, and very hidden within the home. So, I mean, just imagine as a parent, as a human being, having to wake up every day, not know where your children are, how they are, if they're doing well in life, if they're being abused, even if they're alive. And that, I think, coupled with this idea that I need to fight, I need to do everything I can, will cause a lot of these parents to really to burn out emotionally. Um, for me, um, the coping mechanism has been from the beginning to, uh, to fight back, uh, to fight back the system. Um, so uh, shortly after my, my children were abducted, so three, three years and three months ago, um, I, uh, I figured that, and I learned at my own expense, that I, it'd be very difficult to get them back through the, uh, the court process in Japan. So um, I hired a, a lawyer in France, uh, Finel and Zimre, who at the time represented Carlos Ghosn. So they were well aware of the Japanese uh, justice system. And we organized a, um, you know, a class action against Japan. Uh, I filed a petition to the, UN, to the EU as well. Um, you know, I've got a criminal case I'm going in France. And I started doing some press conferences um, and, and trying to lobby the media and the parliament here in Japan. And, and that's, that's how I coped with it. Um, what I found out as well is that many people are very judgmental. You know, some, uh, some parents um, uh, cope, you know, differently. And, and no, one is here, no one should be able to judge them because what we're going through is really um, devastating. And, and I've met uh, parents who uh, started drinking. Some of them started finding a very keen interest in young Japanese girls on campus. Um, you know, some of them just gave up and, and left the country and decided to move on. And, and really, you know, the, the message that I give to you know, all these people who think are in a position to, uh, to judge is that, you know, you don't know what we're going through. Um, and, and that's, you know, you're being taken for full every time you go to court in Japan to the police. So it's very difficult that not only you have to, to, to fight a very uh, a huge injustice, but also you have to deal with the fact that you're not seeing your children and you have to incorporate the fact that you're never going to see them again, potentially. So, you know, it's, it's really a double whammy. And, uh, and, and I'm really trying to fight back anyone judging uh, anyone in our situations. Uh, you know, for me, I think I, I was lucky enough to, uh, to have very strong support from my family and friends, which gave me, you know, the, uh, the, the energy to, uh, to fight back. Um, and, and on a personal level, I'm a bit concerned, uh, you know, when the time will come that, you know, we've tried everything. So, you know, when you've had your head of state stuck into the Japanese head of state, you've taken the case to the EU, to, to, uh, to the UN, uh, you know, I did a strike, you know, what, what else is there to be done? And, and I think this is when also, uh, you know, find my parents could actually help is, is to provide a, uh, you know, a caution for, for people who eventually realize that there's nothing else they can do. And I think that's, that's when um, the, the, the shit really is going to hit the fan uh, for some of us. Um, and listen, and, and commenting on what uh, James said, you know, it's very sad to, to see his children growing up um, and being able to form their own opinion uh, and not wanting to have a relationship with, uh, with James. But I do think it's, it's only temporary. Um, I think it's very easy for a child to grow in Japan and to 
think that um, you know, uh, having been abducted, and I don't even regard it as, as being abducted, is normal. But as soon as you move to a normal country, you know, you will realize that you have actually indeed been been the victim of, of a crime, um, and that you know there is another side to the story. And, and I say that not to make James or anyone else uh, feel better. It's what I've experienced during the hunger strike when. I had a, um, a guy who was abducted by his uh, Japanese mom, of course, a Japanese father. And then he, uh, he grew up in Australia for some unknown reason. And, and he was abducted at the age of five. And he lived in Australia up until 25. So he was very Western minded. Uh, but then he came back to Japan and, and he fell back into the Japanese culture. And on uh, the, the, during the second week of the hunger strike, he came to me and he, uh, he he wanted to say thank you and I said why he was like well he told me his story he was like I was abducted but it's just after reading about the hunger strike and seeing you fighting that that I realized that I had been abducted he was like you know for for him up until that that point he felt like it was just a normal thing because no one taught him otherwise um and and eventually on the last day of the hunger strike he came to me to, to inform me that he had found his dad and now he didn't know how to approach him whether he it was going to be over the phone uh, or uh, an in-person visit. So this guy is called uh, Zuma uh, or Yuma. He's the, the last video that we made during the hunger strike. Um, but, but, you know, it, it really shows that it, this is not right. And I've had a similar case uh, with a French-Japanese uh, uh, kid who was abducted from the States uh, at the age of eight. And his mom passed away four years after she abducted him. Uh, so he grew up basically without a mom and dad, although his dad really wanted to, to connect with him. And he reconnected with his dad on, on Facebook two years ago uh, at the age of 18. Um, they haven't been able to, to meet physically because of COVID and his dad is still in, living in the States, French dad. And he told me uh, after the hunger strike, he reached out, he wanted to meet and he said, look, you know, I never felt like I was kidnapped. Um, my dad told me I had been kidnapped after we reconnected 10 years later, but I didn't, you know, I didn't believe it. And, but now with, you know, the, all the press and, uh, and your action, I, I really feel like I have been kidnapped. So, you know, um, it, it's tough to, uh, to, to wait, but I do think that as soon as our children and what we've got going on for us is that our children are half. So they will never be fully Japanese and I will always be that curious and I will always, there's a high chance that they, you know, move overseas eventually. Um, and I think with time, they will realize what they've gone through. So the part of the fight is to also educate these children to make them realize that what they've gone through is not- 100% on that. And I think that's, that's our job as a parent to bombard the entire internet for these children to look up information. It's like, oh, I was also kidnapped. And hopefully our children start speaking up and saying, like, this is not right. We've been robbed half of our identity, um, half of a culture. I mean, you're, you're, you're French, right? So your children are being robbed of the French side. Um, Tom is Lithuanian. They're being, she's being robbed half of that identity, right? Same with James, half American, right? So it's, yeah. Well, and if I can interject a couple of things based on what Vincent said, um, is first in like in my situation, one of the details that I didn't do in my whole monologue that adds to it is that about a year and a half, just over a year after my kids were taken, my father with who, from whom I'm estranged found out and he's been sending mother money to my ex-wife 
So my father has been having access to all four of my children. He's very wealthy um, and been basically paying my ex-wife. And she was more than happy over the years, as I said in my thing, to sell access. Um, and so now he is based, he and I used to have a company together and he decided to throw me out of it for whatever fucking reason he invented, um, that he's now told my kids, which is bullshit because I I've seen in documents what he told them and it's just utter fat fantasy. Um, but anyhow, he has now put in place because I can see on the internet, he's put in place a manager of our company. And I've been, I've heard through the grapevine, he's actually moved out to Boston to live in shepherd over my, my two sons out there, quote unquote, protect them from me and to have quote unquote family around them. And so my son's ability to freely form thoughts is being controlled by this manipulative fucker who I grew up with. I know his, I know how he does stuff. I mean, I read him like a book. Okay. There's, I have no defense against him. He's got money. He's got access. He's a class. I mean, he's the, one of the best narcissists I've ever met. So he plays victim like nobody ever can. Um, but so my, my hope for my older sons is not that great because they're under his thumb. I have attempted to contact my children through for parents to my, to the school through Facebook groups. And every time I'm in a Facebook group, I get thrown out of it for saying nothing. I just get thrown out of it. And I think it's because someone's crawling in there seeing me or they go and, and creep on my Facebook page and see the ordeal I've been through. And it's just too messy for these parents to deal with. And so they throw me out of these groups. And so it's, that's even more complicating and more heartbreaking for this um, in terms of support. But that, so I mean, that's not, not make it about me, but that, that's, um, that's a complicating factor in my case. Uh, and I have email at quote unquote email addresses for my younger children in Japan who have never, ever replied to me. And I can't even get the Japanese court to, uh, verify that they're actual email addresses to my children and not to some other party that like her batshit crazy attorney. So, you know, there's my bashing in Japan. Um, but that, that is frustrating that we can't even get any authority. Like my God, I mean, Jesus Christ, the U.S. government, step in on these, and they won't. That, that's been heartbreaking. And so I, I understand what you said, Vincent, and that is what, you know, I don't try to even think about it. What happens if I come to the day, I conclude that basically all is lost. You know, am I lost at that point? Because I can tell you there are days that I'm like, I've fucking had it. I'll be straight up and tell you that I'm done. I mean, done with everything, done with life. Um, I'd rather give up. I'd rather give up my life than give up on my kids. Um, that's where my mindset is. And so I hope I never reach that day, but that, that. Yeah. But when you give up on your life, you give up on your kids. So that's not even something to consider. I understand that. And but you can also appreciate some days the pain is so great that you don't have the most altruistic, clear thinking too. Well, um, for my part, uh, what was the most sad, I have a big extended family and, uh, it was quite shocking how little support I've got and uh, how quickly my, my family got sick of all these issues with a, with a taken child. And uh, the second part, which was, even, which was even more appalling, was that uh, the indifference 
of especially my government, Lithuanian government, was so huge. It was on the proportions. I never thought it's it's even possible to have. Uh, whenever whenever I turned for help, uh, I was always shunned away with a simple thing like, "Oh no, Japan, it can happen." What are you talking? Japan is no, no. Japan is developed country. We don't steal children. No, there there must be something somewhere. They will look for about uh, a million reasons how to justify this crime and call it not a crime but a walk in the park. So this was this was very hard. And then and then when I started to go through the lawyers, the Japanese lawyers especially. This was like the biggest waste of time ever. And uh, the, the biggest waste of time and the biggest and the most deceitful of times when, when the lawyer simply knows from the get-go that you're already lost. No way for you to win. Everything is being dusted for you the day the child was, the child or children were taken. And... Uh, Yet the lawyer will come with all kinds of fantasies. Man, we're going to open a case for A. We're going to open a case for access. We're going to open the case for change of custody. We're going to open the case for this, for that. We're going to just basically, we're going to open case after case and we're going to drown the other side in lawsuits. What he does not say, the most crucial of fact, is that when you go to Japanese court, it's like a circus. It's an absolute and utter circus. The only thing you're missing in there, you're missing monkeys and tickets being sold for access to that circus. The rest of that, you, all the elements of the circus are present. And this is, this is like uh, really, really disgusting how, how this abduction became so widespread in Japan that they don't even see it as abduction. Even Japanese themselves, which which is also uh, less than amusing, so to say, even Japanese themselves who have been affected by these abductions, they will not call it abduction. They will call it like, oh, the child, uh, the child was taken from home, and they will uh, speak about it like uh, they will use the language that the child will be returned in, at some point. No, the child will not be returned because uh, mostly, mostly when the child is taken, it's taken for good. And then when it comes to even even uh, as little support as you might get in the beginning or be between the years, you're going through this through this heartbreaking part in in life. Uh, people will say, "Oh, don't worry, the child is getting older." He or she will find you. They will look for you. They will come back. Don't worry like this, like that. But what they seen time and time again, sadly, too often the child will not come back. Or if the child will come back, uh, the child will be broken. Number one, the child will come back in an adult form. So yes, you it, he will always be your child, but it will not be the child uh, like you would have a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever years old. It will be an adult. So the thinking, the understanding, it will be all different. And then it will, uh, it will come 
uh, to the point like it happened, like James just mentioned, yeah, the child might come back even to his own country. Now no need to worry about orders and whatnot. The children are back in 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 US, uh, two children, but yet they're so they're so estranged from him that even they're kind of close, they couldn't be farther away. So that is that is what people need to really understand when they say that yeah, but the child don't worry, the child will come back. The child will come back, maybe, hopefully, but it will never be the child like it's supposed to be. Okay. Um, okay, well that's really difficult to answer because uh I'm sure everyone has the same difficulty answering it because it's it's the kind of abuse that we and the children go through it's so insidious and it's so low-key that it doesn't seem in itself like abuse or painful um like um for me a lot of it is like just the gaslighting um people just not understanding that you know everything there's in everyone's minds they 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 have in their minds a way a, you know things should be and you know like a societal expectation of things and um because of those expectations i can't usually meet my kids needs a lot of the time um and uh, see, i'm i'm having a terrible time even explaining it but um you know like uh uh try to explain it maybe one of the things is like for example when i was going through the divorce i was told i can't tell the kids certain things like how i knew the kids were going to go to japan and not come back for example i, I couldn't tell them that because you know the court orders would have said they're coming back so i couldn't warn them and i couldn't say things that would lead them to believe they wouldn't come back when i knew what was going to happen and if I did say it, it's like I was abusing them. Um, and if I told them things like, don't listen to Papa, because if he would say something that was like, um, you know, mommy's crazy or, or mommy's horrible or, um, you know, uh, mommy doesn't love you, right? If, if he would say those things to them, then, and I find out somehow, and I say to the kids, don't listen to him, okay? Then I, again, it looks like I'm abusing the kids in itself of me just saying, don't listen to Papa. And um, like when I got them back and I ended up in a homeless shelter and I would lie to the kids saying, you know, it's gonna be okay soon. We're gonna get things sorted soon. And I would talk to the, you know, the therapists at the homeless shelter. She'd be like, well, why are you lying to the kids? Why don't you tell them things aren't gonna get better soon, you know? So it's really frustrating for me to figure out uh, how to fix these, you know, these, you know, brainwashing things that are put in my kid's head and put them back on, you know, their normal age level track of what they should be thinking or hearing or knowing. And, um, you know, that doesn't seem like so horrible, I guess, especially in comparison with the parents that don't even get their kids back, you know, cause it's probably a million times worse the kind of brainwashing they go through. But on top of that, cause I got the kids back, I, I'm supposed to be eternally grateful, which I am, but I mean, I'm not grateful with the baggage that came along with it. And then the, the baggage that I can't fix, or I don't have the tools to fix. 
or even if, you know, if I do tell the kids, don't think this way, or I try to, you know, set the record straight with some things that they were told, um, then I'm, you know, then I'm talking about adult subjects, right? Like, uh, when they were kidnapped and my ex-husband told them that I beat up a teacher when I came to the school to see them, which I didn't, I, I came to the school and I tried to walk in and I kept walking in towards, you know, towards the inside of the school and a teacher blocked me and I just kept walking. So it's, it's like I was pushing him, I guess they, you know, they were trying to make it, I was like pushing him cause I was pushing my way in. Um, and I never laid my hands on him, but you know, like my shoulder was, you know, putting pressure against his body because he was blocking me. And the story they were told is I hit a teacher, right? And so when I try to tell the kids what really happened, you know, I didn't hit the teacher or whatever. But when I tell them the truth, then I'm going back into, you know, a subject that I shouldn't be talking about because it's an adult subject and there was lies involved and they were lied to and things like that. So I have this problem often. And um and again, the kids have certain ideas or expectations of me because their father told them certain things. And um I can't meet, you know, I, I just, I can't meet what's expected of me from the children and from uh, other parents that don't experience what I experience. And if I start to talk about these subjects and other parents over here, then I sound like a terrible person or a terrible mother because I'm talking about these very adult sensitive subjects, you know, and it's, it's hard for me to know what, what is okay to talk about with them or not with them. So. Um, it's, 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 in an, I mean, each little incident is not a big deal, but just, you know, uh, dealing with the gaslighting from, you know, every direction all day, every day, like even, um, you know, being poor as I am, I mean, I'm, you know, bankrupt and in homeless shelter and I'm constantly, you know, by society in America, I uh, deserve to be, you know, deserve to suffer just simply because I'm poor in their minds. You know, so I already have that, like whenever I encounter anybody along this journey, it's that's the, I already first have to start with that barrier everywhere I go. So it's just this constant gaslighting and judging by society. You know, I'm sure like the dads have a similar thing where, you know, just, just because they can't be around their kids, they immediately assume dads are a deadbeat dad. Even they just ignore the fact that they're trying to, to be in their kids' lives you know, it, it, it doesn't matter to them. They think, well, you're not in your kid's life. So therefore you must be a deadbeat dad, you know, is I'm sure a similar thing all the dads are facing. And, um, it's, there's no way to argue your way out of it. It's, there's no way to explain it because no one can understand it's, if it happened like once or twice, but all day, every day, you just, yeah. it just, I have a question you. here, Rachel, for you. It's a two you know? part question, which I wrote down here. The first is like, a. I guess the most important question is uh, okay. the kids that you went several months without seeing them, talking to them, did they ask you why? That's, that's question number one. And, and uh, number two is the judge who you warned about Japan being the black hole of child abduction globally is like, did he, did he ever apologize or did he ever, did, did he see what transpired? Did he do anything on his behalf to help you? Has he reached out in any shape or form, anything from that courthouse? 
uh, for your first question, um, I I knew what the kids must be thinking. I, I could, it was easy to assume that, you know, what he was already telling them. And when I first saw them, they did not ask. They did not, you know, they didn't ask. And I expected that much. I expected them to be afraid of me. And they were, but they didn't really show it at first. Um, and um, I actually, I, I, I was uh, going to ask, I haven't done it yet, but I was going to ask if you wanted my kids to jump on and um, I was going to tell them that they maybe they would like to see if they wanted to talk. And that might be a good question for them, actually. <laughs> but um, they told me later that uh, he had told them that, um, you know, I didn't want to be in Japan. I didn't want to see them. I didn't love them. They did ask uh, in the beginning to call me. And he would snap back saying, um, uh, you know, don't ask, don't ask about that anymore. Um, and um, after probably seven months of that, I mean, I, I'm sure they, they stopped asking after maybe a month of that or something, you know. Um, and then they just assumed he was telling the truth because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. And um when I did see them, they were kind of quiet and didn't, they didn't know what to expect. And it took like a, a month before they um, started to open up about some of the experiences they had. Um, the other, the other question about the judge. Um, so it was a woman judge actually. And um, I, kind of pieced together afterwards what was probably in her head was that I was alienating him when I was trying to protect the kids because I was trying to block the visits um not the visits completely but the visit to Japan and it looked like and when I read uh what he had submitted and things like that I realized after the fact that those were things that sound like I was alienating the kids against him because in the in the beginning I realized in the beginning I thought he was just making crazy talk like some of his papers said that uh, the kids were whispering when mom came around and I was like what kids whisper all the time why does that matter but I realized that later that that could be a sign that the kids were alienated and I knew after the fact my ex-husband had researched parental alienation and made sure he knew what wording to put in all of his motions so he made sure to say that the kids got quiet when mom entered the room and then they started whispering and they were afraid to come near me or things like that. So he just, he was very cunning and clever and did his research beforehand and convinced the judge way before I even had a chance to talk that I was the narcissistic one or the, the abusive one. Um, now she, uh, like I said, she already she already decided in her mind, you know, which party was the problem. So every time I tried to fight their visit, I got shot down. And the day they left, I came in front of a different judge because I put in an emergency motion. And I came in front of a different judge and I begged that judge to get a custody evaluator done or a custody evaluation done before they left. And he said, no, but he would meet the children for me to just, you know, just to evaluate them or check them to see if he seemed like they were being abused. And he met them and he said they were fine and they should go. And it was not the same judge that 
that did our custody trial and did the custody ruling and had the kids go to Japan. Um, the second judge, the male judge, Judge Jordan, he um, he wanted to back up because, you know, judges, they want to back up other judges judgments. Right. So he didn't want to overturn what she said. So he he went with what she said and sent the kids and um, went on that day. Uh, I I said I remember saying on the record, I said to the judge, I said, I want it on the record that I told you that if they leave today, they're not coming back. And he said, okay. And then six weeks later, I was in front of that same male judge and the, uh, his clerk was crying because she remembered the story. She remembered me. She remembered my kids. And the judge, he, after we did the hearing where he ordered the children to come back, he went off the record. So he turned the speakers off and he said, he apologized, he apologized to me. So he did say he was sorry, but the original judge, the woman judge who did the ruling to send them, she never, I never saw her again. I never spoke to her again. I never, she never apologized. She never showed her face to me. Yeah, that, that, that wasn't up to her. So he did apologize though, the guy who did allow the children to yeah, go. Yeah, but he wasn't the one that made the original judgment. Yeah. I and mean, he did apologize to my face and he did it another, a second time. He, he apologized two times to me in person, but off the record because a judge can never apologize on the record. Wow. Yeah. And, and did I mean? I'm just curious. Is there anything within the law that he advised that he, the United States can do anything, anything like like listen, like if I'm the judge, like listen, I fucked up, man. Like this is I. I is there any legal advice he gave nope. you? No, there's nothing he did. He did tell me um, on the so there was like two or three hearings we had where he was in, my ex was in contempt of not bringing the kids back. And I think on the second one, he did say that he tried to talk to contacts, but the state department told him he can't get involved. That he's not allowed to get involved, that I have to go through proper channels and I have to go through the Hague and I have to, and they tried to give me a Hague lawyer, but my ex had already consulted all the Hague lawyers in my area. So my state couldn't give me a free Hague lawyer, Hague lawyer because of conflict of interest at that point. So He'd already planned this out before he left, obviously. Yeah. And in my case, yeah. in my case, literally, yep. literally and figuratively the word case, um, I has I was also directed towards the State Department. And even beyond you know, there's a warrant for my ex-wife's arrest for contempt of court. And stat the Minnesota statute, according to my attorney, who was a liaison for the Minnesota Bar Association on behalf of the family matters to the U.S. to the Minnesota legislature. She says your wife's picture should be in the statute because she so perfectly fits what she just did. I cannot get the local uh, Hennepin County attorney to charge her with a statute that was literally fucking written with her, had her name in mind. I can't get them to do it. And, pre and because, well, first it was George Floyd. Another is there's other reasons let's say whispers, no one will go on record, but basically um, and I can't get my cider, Amy Klobuchar to help. And it's all sort of the same sort of cabal. Um, and that is uh, the original judge who got in my local judge who got overturned was very politically connected and his overturning by the subsequent judge since he stepped off the bunch bench was so public. So such a public fuck you, you're an idiot kind of ruling that he has poisoned the well for me politically. 
And also, I also know that my dad contributes heavily to political organizations. So I don't doubt that he has also contacted the senator's office. So, but they all did direct me to the State Department, which we all know is useless, absolutely, utterly useless. And if, if, if we, at some point, if we can get our, our, our stuff together in a group, I would love to devote resources and time to shining a very bright light on the, on the futility and if it's even such a proper word, malpractice of the U.S. State Department. Um, for the public to see, and in the particular with with the very calculated juxtaposition of children crying, children torn away from their parents, and putting that bright light on the State Department to act on this behalf, on our behalf. But, yeah, yeah. The, the State Department, I think, um, is clearly failing all Americans, at least, and in, 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 in towards Japan, right? So actually, guys, before I drop out of the call, I just wanted to, um, to, to highlight, you know, I think the we know that Japan will never change. We know that we never win a battle in the, in a Japanese court, but we can and, and we know that our countries, all of them uh, will do for a call to, uh, to to bring our children home. So I think, um, to me, the only thing we can do is to um, uh, twist our country's arms to, to act. And I think, you know, Chris Smith's statement uh, like two weeks ago, uh, stating that he was going to pass a law or enact a bill to, uh, to compel the US government to use the Goldman Act, I think is, is probably the only avenue. And I think this is where our efforts, uh, you know, should be focused on. I'm working with a French senator to replicate the, um, the Goldman Act uh, to have a French version and potentially a European one of the Goldman Act uh, while correcting its, uh, its weaknesses, uh, namely uh, not only to look at international, but also national abductions, because an abduction is an abduction, and to make it uh, mandatory for government to use it. And it should not be left at the discretionary of diplomats who have um, you know, economic uh, concerns uh, in mind rather than uh, human rights. So anyway, so I, you know, if you're going to carry on the conversation further, and I'm sorry for dropping out, um, I think we should really team up to uh, to, to try to uh, make sure that our countries have no choice and are being held accountable for not sanctioning Japan, for not respecting uh, human rights treaties, both for international and also national abduction. Yeah, and um, before you drop off on that one, it's like, yeah, that's true. And I, I, I uh, internally at Five Parent, we've discussed about how, and I think I CC'd you on that email, right? where we can somehow put a nice group together and all several countries working together and go against Japan and against our own governments for, for lack of effort. Yeah. And, and Vincent, and all the work you've done, which is a massive, and the connections you guys have, you and the other folks over in the European Union, one of the massive failings, I think you touched on it, but I want to put a finer point on it, of the Goldman Act. And one of the biggest screw ups we had with the Goldman Act is we took the power of enforcement from the department that had guns and deals with laws and we put it in the hands of people whose living it is just to talk about shit and resolve nothing. Oh, and just diplomats. And so if you were to be, if you were to improve upon the Goldman Act, the spirit of it, please have it still rest its powers in, in the departments and the agencies that still have guns and have law enforcement, not in the hands of the diplomats. And thank you, Vincent. Well, 
what I what I would like to add, uh, especially for uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. being a big uh, and powerful country, of course, uh, and having Japan as a best buddy for the last like seventy five years, well, it was uh, the uh, the worst enemy turned to to be best buddy lately, and um, what what I see a big problem with U.S. government is. Back in the day, namely, let's talk not even that far away, uh, 10 years or so ago, people were actually sneakily running. I, I, by people, I mean Japanese. G- Japanese were actively uh, sneakily running from the States back to Japan by uh, getting passports in fraudulent ways, skirting the law, this and that. They were literally running from the country. Now, when it comes to uh, Rachel's case, is one of the one of the best examples where the where the judges themselves will say, oh, but you know what? Uh, yeah, you know, the children supposed to be able to go to go to, to Japan to see their other half of the country, even though they have a wealth, an immense wealth of knowledge, evidence. Uh, not just hearsay, not just, oh, I don't like the country kind of thing, but actual evidence in print, in, in um, documented one too many times where children will go to Japan and they will disappear. And yet at the end of the day, they will, uh, they will, you know, they will stand their ground saying, well, you know, this case might not be the case what you're trying to say. Or let's hope it will not be the case. And and then, in the end, we think, oh, if something happens, if something goes wrong, I'm a judge, I have all the power. The thing we don't realize is that they have power in America. They don't have power. The moment, the moment these people leave America, their power is absolutely gone. We're just like anybody else. And maybe, maybe Rachel will be able to elaborate a little bit exactly on on how how the judge was more than willing uh, to facilitate for children uh, to go to Japan and, and, and literally get abducted. Yeah, it would be very, albeit not extra legal, it would be very nice to have some kind of law, which has never passed, that binds uh, it, it allows judges to be held accountable for this situation or to have it be basically put up publicly so they can be, you know, so-and-so ruled in this case and they were provided this evidence to be warned that this would occur. And in spite of this evidence, this judge ruled this, these kids are now gone and um, be some sort of redress capable, which I know is because then everybody, it would open up Pandora's box, everybody that ever got wrong by a judge could be suing. So, but you know the spirit of that. But along the same lines, I would really, if, if we could get our act, to, we, and it's not putting on us, but collective we in this boat, could find some way to hold the State Department accountable or the U.S. account government accountable for all that we have been through financially um, in these abductions. Also, um, and I don't know the nature of Chris Smith's efforts, but if there could be uh basically the onus put in the government you know when i testified i think the last two times before congress um i put out the same idea 
And that is the, you know, going back, actually I'm going to digress even further. We're talking about how to get Japan to do this. And you mentioned Tomas really that Japan just won't do anything. And, but what, but if, you know, I've had a relationship with Japan since 1987 and I worked there, I worked there twice. I lived there twice, um, you know, married to someone from there. You know, I did business with them prior to that. So, I mean, I've had this long trajectory of life with Japan. And one thing I know absolutely about Japanese is they will not do anything unless they have no choice, i.e. they are forced to do it. And then they're very happy. They very happily acquiesce because now they're a victim. Well, I had Shogunai. There's nothing that could be done. I had to do this. And I think for us to be successful, uh, and I said this in my podcast, the U.S. government and someone's got to go to the U.S. government to simply take the stature, albeit brutish and barbaric, to say, God damn it, you're going to do this. And this is how it's going to roll. In the first 30 days, it's between the two parties. In this next 60 days, it's between the two countries. And after, on the 61st day, the United States is going to deem all these children that have not been returned under bona fide court orders to be held hostage. And we will use every means at our disposal to extract these now hostage children from Japan. That's what I, my end game would be that. <laughs> I agree. That's the only way, but how do we get there? How do we collectively unite? I mean, um, how, how, how do we go about that? I mean, and I say that because I've tried, I, I, I've really tried it. And, and I guess one thing that really irks me is the fact that even though we see the IDI in, 90% of the things, there's that 10% we don't see IDI and that 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 becomes a roadblock why we can't move forward. I like there's so many things I don't see IDI with several people on certain things and I don't make that a roadblock why I can't talk to them. Mm-hmm. Right? Or why can't be part of a group collaboration. I mean, I think we learned this, I think in, at least in the United States, where we went to elementary, middle school, and high school is, and even college is collaboration, right? Um, right. And we may not see it eye to eye and everything, but overall, we have a project and we need to fi- finish that project. And why can't we do that for this? And I, and this isn't a question for everybody on this. Yeah, you, you're talking about various organizations or NGOs that are about in this issue. Yes, them as well. Yeah. And there, and I've, I've touched on all or been touched or interacted with all of them and, and they'll do great work and they've all had their successes. Um, one in particular that I won't mention, I think is most concerned in the perpetuation of their connection to the government and getting called to testify constantly and never irritating anybody. Uh, that I don't think they, they do much. And I mean, they try, but I don't, you know, other than getting the issue brought up, which I guess is a lot, I shouldn't be dismissive. They get the testimony and they get people before to testify. But when it, when it comes, there are members that could do a lot to help other members that I don't think they influence enough, put pressure on enough to help them help. When, when it comes to, especially to U.S., uh, this political correctness of uh, Japan is our ally you know and it's it's a little bit uh it's a little bit nuts to say the least that oh uh, 
you know, political correctness basically will prevent from a lot of politicians speaking about this issue because uh, it's kind of like bashing your allies. But why, why, does, why does it work with Japan where, um, where you know, it's not, uh, we should be quiet uh, about Japan stealing the children, but then we will go and lecture uh, Iran, Iraq, how to do their business. You know, why, why, why Japan is so exempt? And uh, another another thing uh, for um, for US to to get on on top of things is simply to say, look, if if you're so best buddies of ours, why do you keep stealing our children? Uh, when was the last time you heard Japan crying victim that Japanese were abducted to United States of America? Like honestly, I don't think so. I've ever heard a single instance of them crying in Japanese. They're excellent in being victim. They're like the victim of victims. They, you, you know, you cannot find better victims than Japanese. And yet, not a single instance so far I've heard that Japanese will, will go on any kind of arena and will cry, oh my goodness, you know, our nationals are being abducted as we speak to the United States. Yet, on the other hand, we hear countless of times by now that American children are being abducted to Japan and yet the State Department and uh, whoever else, like the, the government at large, will, will do absolutely nothing and will, oh, you know, Japan is our ally, Japan is our buddy. What kind of buddy is that that abducts your citizen? Like, why, 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 don't, why don't we call, uh, you know, North Korea the buddy of, uh, you know, Japan too? If uh, Japanese abducts Americans and your buddies and North Korea abducted Japanese, so they must be buddies too, right? Sh shouldn't be, you know, uh, quit pro quo in, in, in that kind of sense? Yeah, but the Jap, yeah, well, I got some answers on that. One, you know, since in my case, is one of the very first Hague cases between the United States and Japan. Uh, Hague was ratified in April 2014. My kids were taken in July of 2014. So I'm one of the first few. I don't know if I'm number three, five, or whatever. I lose track. And so I was, I was real aware and paying attention and super focused on this when it all happened in the beginning. And um, Japanese who have kids stolen, quote, abducted to the United States, they get them back because the State Department works their ass off to make, the, make sure those kids get returned to Japan. And um, as horrible as that sounds for us, the State Department does their side of the equation, hoping and believing diplomatically the Japanese do theirs. And what I know about Japan is that they are um, takers. There are three, you know, if you want to talk, if you want to categorize three kinds of people or behaviors, you have givers, takers, and matchers. Givers just give because it's the right thing to do. Matchers give because it's a quid pro quo. Takers just fucking take until you stop giving, right? Japanese are matchers and takers. They're never givers. And so we go and we lose every negotiation because we start from the noble goal of being a giver. You know, we're going to give a little to get a little. And as I already said numerous times, that the Jap every concession is considered a weakness and a gift to Japanese. They never concede anything. Okay. And, and we, that's why we lose diplomatically because we believe it's a two way street. It isn't, it's only their, it's their street and it's their direction they want to go. Um, so 
the part where you, you know, you're saying Tomas is that Japan is, and I know from the people I talked to in the very beginning at the state department, when they used to talk to me about stuff fairly candidly before all the, um, gag orders went in or whatever effective gag orders went in. Um, and that is Japanese get their kids back. You just don't hear about it because the Japanese take care of it uh, privately and quietly um, through other channels. And I think part of the State Department's mindset is why don't we do that? Uh, why can't we with abducted parents here? You know, in essence, I've, I've said this before privately to, to Enrique, uh, Enrique and I've said it to other fathers who have been in our role too. And that is um, you have a very, 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 high likelihood of success, getting your, maybe getting your children back, but certainly being in their lives, if you will pay the ransom to do that. I've known fathers who have, who've been fortunate to have had a lot of goddamn money and they basically paid to get their kids back in their lives. And I'm not, unfortunately I'm not in that position. Um, and so I don't get to see my kids, but I'm pretty damn sure if, let's say if I won the lottery and I threw a big bag of money at my wife, Voila, I could see my kids. So they are, they are, there's not a noble bone in their body uh, for us to appeal or think that they're like, oh, what's the best interest of the children? It's in the, the best interest is whatever the, the abducting parent deems their best interest. There's no, no, there's no higher thought. Um, and so that a lot, pardon the pun here, but these, these appeals we make are very foreign to Japanese. The mindset so that's why we're unsuccessful and so i want to go back to just saying we would be very successful in if we did the in my mind obviously my opinion these following things one is we change the discussion to one where we have we we educate the lawmakers that we need to dictate to japan what's going to happen not ask them don't ever give them a choice just tell them this is what's going to happen two in what we do is we could use things like google adwords the basically and I'll say something that maybe trigger some people, but one of the, one of the tools in social media, why Trump was so effective in getting elected the first time or when he got elected, use those tools to help us. That sort of interactive marketing kind of boom, bounce back, bounce back, that type of thing where they just built an army by just dripping out information. We could do that on Facebook and also Twitter until of course somebody deemed it was offensive. I don't have any reason to believe that we wouldn't get blocked on that path at some point um, because the Japanese can censor a lot of stuff. You know, you know, they'll just get offended and they'll censor it. But there are ways of, of this drip marketing that can change people's opinions that we could do on social media. And I don't know what it costs, probably costs stuff to do that, but we could just get it out there. That's how we start changing the conversation. That's how we change the mindset on Japan. You know, kind of like, did you know? Did you know, you know, the age of, and I'll pick something very lightning rod and, and, and to the point, did you know the age of consent for sex for it not to be statutory rape is 14 in Japan, in many parts of Japan it used to be 12. Boom. That a lot of people, when you hear that, they're like, what the fuck, huh? That's the country. That's Japan. You know, that leads to other discussions. You know, that's not San Mario. That's not Mount Fuji. You know, and did you know that, you know, young girls are trafficked, you know, without regard in Japan. Do you know kids are, you know, and then you enter the thing, kids are abducted, you know, now you've got your attention. Let me now educate you, right? And so there are four, no, no, I'm gonna over on here, but I wanna share with you four tried and true 
methods for effective communication. Actually, for marketing, it's you know, marketing is 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 communication, nothing more and nothing less. Okay, and so if you want to be very effective in communicating a message like marketing, you need to get someone's attention, keep it, educate, and then provide them a low risk offer to continue. So um, we need we put our messages out. We need to get their attention, keep it educate them by telling them what we want them to hear and then provide a path for a low risk, low cost, no commitment way of learning more. Uh, Trump did that in his ads. Um, you know, when he got elected, Parscale Par was excellent at that and other things like that. And we could, with the technology you have, Enrique and other connections we have, we could create a campaign or campaigns like that, that feature that kind of element and it's super super effective it's been it's tried and true it's like it's like communication physics really but a lot of people fail on it like one example one misconception is people say sex sells no sex interrupts um it doesn't educate it interrupts it gets your attention but then it fails the the test the next thing and they just keep your attention so we need you know a crying child gets your attention but you've got to follow it with keeping it and then edu educating. So anyways, that's enough of my soapbox, sorry. But I will, uh, I would like to add the one thing uh, as we, as anybody who is involved in, uh, with Japan for a long period of time, let's say longer than it takes to get acquainted with Sakura, Mount Fuji, maybe some sushi and sashimi, with green tea to the side of it. Um, you know, the Japanese, uh, will cry victim uh, time and time again with whatever thing. And even though you mentioned, James, that uh, they do, indeed, they, they do uh, have children taken to US too, but they solve it privately. However, every time you bash them, you would expect them to bring it up and say, whoa, 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 but you take, the chil uh, you take Japanese children to US too, right? But we, we never say that. And, uh, and and that is that is something very very puzzling. Why, why on this specific issue, Japan is dead quiet. Like literally until until you you almost scream at them uh, regarding uh, regarding uh, child abduction to and within Japan, they will not even acknowledge that there's such a topic going. So that that is that is something fascinating for me that. Even, even uh, you know, to save their face, usually they will scream back uh, at parties, oh, but you do the same, but you do the same, you do the same. On this particular point, they never do that, not one time. Because they're, they're excellent on the steel. Yeah, professionals. You're professional stealers. And, and, one, of, and one of the very first Hague cases that ever happened and it was the State Department pointed to as a success, not just in success, but in the number of children that went back, was between two Japanese people, Manabe. And um, the Manabe case, she got her kids back uh, from Japan, from the father, and she was, she was escorted or accompanied, I'll use accompanied, by two FBI agents, FB, U.S. FBI agents, to her habeas corpus ruling, uh, uh, case or habeas corpus trial in Japan, and they grabbed the they got their four kids and brought them back with two U.S. FBI agents in in accompanying them. Okay, 
You bring that up to the State Department, they, of course, say, we deny that. We can't comment on it. It's a private. It's a fucking fact. They won't talk about it. Why don't we get FBI agents? Because I asked them straight up and they said, well, we can't do that. Bullshit. I know you did. And they can't comment on that. You know, and so they get I don't know how they do it. They being Japanese find ways of getting shit done. And I don't know how it is, okay? but they do. Yeah, it's just the thing is they, they know that we have I think what, what it boils down to is that. I'll use this example. Um, they know that in the United States there's certain laws there's two things there's laws and they know that we the government here will follow the law whatever it is written down they'll go about it and, and they, they legally they're, they're, we are obliged to, to do it sure. and they know that in Japan there is no law I mean uh, I'm very simple case a CEO will steal money in Japan, but if he's Japanese, all he has to go and he's going to be charged for for treason, corruption, money laundering, yada, yada, yada. The list is like as long as uh, the sequence of a DNA. However, all he has to go do is sit on a podium, say, listen, guys, I know what I did was wrong. I truly apologize for my actions, and therefore I've decided I need to step down. The big gomenocide. <laughs> and I'm really sorry. <laughs> and that's it. All charges disappear. Yeah. And uh, the, what, this is this is what we call in in Japan like uh, Kisha Kaiken or uh, like press conference uh, for the wider audience. And uh, yeah, these people will come. They will do a proper bow, about like ninety degrees, preferably, uh, and uh, should last about no less than 30 seconds. And if you can do 90 degrees for about like in excess of 30 seconds, you be, you're gonna be absolved of any and all crimes you committed. However, if you happen to be a foreigner, no bending will help you, unfortunately. Not, not in this country. If you happen to be a foreigner, they will throw the book of the law so hard at you that you will not remember from which side to you know to, to which side to duck mm -hmm. yeah it was a, I have a guy that used to work for me that's that was in the navy retired and he used to refer to and so they would go and do war games over in the pacific and with japan and they used to joke joke quasi cynically joke with the people that went on shore leave that stay out of these areas don't even look crosswise at the police over there and he was telling me the story and I, and I laughed. He said, why? He goes, oh, he says, because I have a Tokyo phone book confession. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we'll take you into the room and beat you about the head of the Tokyo phone book until you admit to what they're charging you with. And, oh, okay. <laughs> so. Yep. Sounds about right. And, and that's, that's the difference, right? And, 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 and over here, you know, if Toyota does something wrong, like their airbag, gas pedal, mat, whatever, it's a billion dollar, it's a billion dollar fine, right? And there's no way, there's yeah. no way around that they'll go ahead and pay it, and they know that, and they just want to get it out, mm -hmm. out of, out of, um, get out of it as quickly as possible, because again, Japan never does any wrong, right? And they've they've invested, the companies with the help of the government have invested billions of dollars a year, um, to make sure that, you know, Japan does nothing wrong. They're just absolutely perfect, yeah. 
and that's what they want to shed through to all the world, yeah, right? What I, what I remembered also, Tomas, in my own particular case, the one that went to the Japanese Supreme Court, in in an beyond the judge's opinion, there actually was one of the judges that had his own separate opinion afterwards or comment in my case, and what he was he wanted he thought it was so important that he had to say on the record that he thinks the Hague is a stupid idea and very limiting in that we shouldn't have such universe, universal language, you know, all encompassing universal language and that each one of these should be decided in a case by case situational basis. Well, uh, to tell you, to tell you interesting fact, uh, just a couple of days uh, ago, uh, there was, uh, a discussion on on Japanese TV, and uh, it's, uh, that's what we call single mothers forum. Uh, basically, a, a uh, NGO which uh, which helps all the single mothers who steal the children. Um, the speaker of that uh, of that NGO came came and said exactly the same. We said, well, we shouldn't have uh, joint custody is so universal. We should this. Uh, we should, uh, you know, decide on case by case basis because every case is unique. But uh, when you when you listen to the people who got involved, unfortunately, in this matter, the only uniqueness about us is number of children, the date of abductions, and the difference in their names. The facts are more or less the same, and uh, mainly the fact is that. Let's say let, let's bring like hundred nations will have one and the same problem with one nation. So that is that is something not that very unique and not case by case basis. That that is like happening daily. It's 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 a given. It's like sun is gonna come up every morning, and and that's that. And yet the you know this uh, these people will speak every single time. Will speak like no, we cannot put uh, joint custody in place because it will, uh, you know, it will give access to domestic violence people, you know, uh, to the family, and you know, I, either usually the mother will run from the domestic violence, and of course the father now will be legally able to go and harass, you know, the other side uh you know into visitation and this and that but they never think and they never talk about the children's rights we always remember the parents the adults rights but the children's rights it's never been a question like uh, a simple thing as the child having a right to a parent is not even debatable and uh, in most cases why it's not even debatable because they don't treat a child as a little human. They treat a child as a little, not just a little belonging, straightforward yeah. um, possession. And therefore, yeah. you know, the last time I checked, belongings and possessions did not have any kind of rights because they're just things. Right. So this yeah. is dogs, dogs don't have rights. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is one of those things which which happens, you know, in Japan, like. Uh, way way too often and again political correctness stops it from people coming and saying no this is bullshit okay the domestic violence okay so parents don't get uh you know along with each other yeah you know let them let them deal 
What has the kid or kids to do with it? Nothing. For the kid, if mother and father sleeps in the same bed, in different rooms, in different cities, it doesn't make the difference that the one is a father, another is a mother. It doesn't change a, a fact, none, none, uh, none, bit, uh, none one little bit about it. And yet in Japan, they will be like, ah, no, the moment you, uh, you stop sleeping in the same bed, uh, it's no good for children to be around because uh, they're going to have some sort of bad influence. But then, um, like, I would be brazen enough and ask him, oh, really? Is that the case? Why America, 350 million people, sorry, 320 million people doing all right? Europe as a whole, 550 million people, we're doing just fine. We don't have these problems or where people sleep and how they sleep and, and what happens to children. Only one one special nation, Japan, inbred, inbred to the neck, you know, so much so that the, the best scientists probably cannot deal with their DNA no more. And uh, they will come and say, oh, we are so special that, you know, the moment, uh, the moment you start to disagree, you know, the moment spouses start uh, to disagree uh, amongst themselves, the children should be cut off because it's for the betterment of children. It's kind of strange. And we're living in 2021, by the way, not, not, in, not in the Stone Age. So it shouldn't be, shouldn't be rocket science. Thank you, everyone, for those answers. I know I only asked one question, but it was awesome to listen to you guys, you know, go back and forth with each other and answer each other's questions. Now, this is the end of the first part of a two-part series. We will release the next episode within the next few days. Don't miss that. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone and if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care till then. Yeah, can be just like me. You're a